Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Master wine Neva Calamatre originally wanted to be a ballet dancer or a florist until she got the wine bug. Since she graduated from Cornell University, she spent a lot of her career working for very large wineries, but is now entirely focused on her own family's project in the Finger Lakes, called Trestle 31. I caught up with her from a truck stop in Akron, Ohio, of all places, so I hope you'll forgive some of the background noise. It's a really interesting conversation about California, China, New York State, Riesling, and why wine is really a performance art. Hello, Nova, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Uh, I'm really well, thank you. Just tell us where you're talking to us from today. Are you in the Finger Lakes? I assume you are. Uh, no, actually, I'm in Akron, Ohio right now because we are in the middle of our cross-country move from Napa to the Finger Lakes. And uh, we just stopped by my client that's in Lancaster, Ohio, and we're planting a vineyard and he's starting a wine brand. And so that's really exciting. And so we stopped with, we were to see him last night and now we are on our way to the Finger Lakes today. So you're on the move, basically. Well, not quite, not move. literally. Yes, yes, <laughs> literally moving. <laughs> Anyway, lots of stuff to talk to, uh, about today. California, obviously, uh, where you've been for a long time, and also about New York State and, and, and the Finger Lakes. But I want to begin just with a little bit of, of background about you, because some people won't know your story, and it's a great story, that you, you were brought up in Greer in South Carolina. And I thought, well, I'll do a bit of research, and I'll look this up. And I was amazed at how that, that South Carolina has about a dozen wineries. So were you yes. aware of any of them when you were growing up? And were your parents no, wine drinkers? No. My parents were not wine drinkers. Um, I was not aware of the wineries. And, and I think there have, are more now than there were when we were when I was growing up, because there really wasn't a culture of wine in the Southeast. Um, it was either you drank beer or you drank hard liquor or you didn't drink at all. Like there was kind of no in between. I didn't really know about wine. And it really wasn't until I started dating my husband um, and his family's from New Jersey and are Italian heritage and uh, Scotch heritage. And um, so they have wine with every meal. And so that's really when I got introduced to this culture of wine. Ah, because I noticed your first degree was in was in horticulture, wasn't it? It wasn't yes. in viticulture. And I read somewhere that you worked as a florist. And when you were a student, you were thinking about doing that. I just wonder when you switched, when did you swerve to viticulture yes. and enology? So my, um, my associate's degree is in ornamental horticulture, so focusing on plants that are grown in greenhouses. And so, yes, I did work as a florist through my first two years of college and um, then worked uh, at, a hortic- at a public gardens as um, an outdoor display intern in, after graduating with my bachelor's degree. And, and, um, then it was at that time when I was doing that outdoor display intern at a gardens called Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania, that my boyfriend at the time, now my husband said, oh, we should start a vineyard. My family in Italy did it. It can't be that hard. And so I said, well, let me look into it. And I had already been accepted to Cornell into the a horticulture program, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I really wanted to go that route to get a full bachelor's when I was kind of just thinking, well, I'll just open my own flower shop and, and that'll be, I don't really need a four-year degree to do that. 
And so then um, what happened is I started looking into grapevines and really kind of fell in love with this whole concept of vineyards and what you can do with grapes. And then Cornell announced the undergraduate program in viticulture and enology. And I said, oh, this is perfect. I'll just transfer um, there into viticulture versus horticulture. And, and that's, that's what I did. So it was really that in between my associates and my bachelor's that the transition happened. And do you think it helped studying on the East Coast as opposed to being, you know, studying at Davis in California, for example? Yeah, for sure. Because, it, I mean, you kind of see everything that is possible to see in the Finger Lakes. Like we have all the problems. And so we kind of look at it as like altitude training for winemaking. So, <laughs> yeah. And then your first internship was at a tiny winery in Pennsylvania, I think, wasn't it called Stargazer's Vineyard? And then straight yes. after you graduated, you were in a Fresno facility making, you know, 15 million cases a year. I just wonder, what was the switch like going from this tiny little winery in Pennsylvania to a, an enormous beer moth in, in California? Well, it really was um, talking about, like, going from Stargazer's Vineyard to Thirsty Owl Wine Company in upstate New York then out to Mission Bell, which was 15 million cases. And, and and so it was, it was a huge, like crazy transition going back and forth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, I, it was, it was overwhelming for me and I had to learn more of the logistics side of things. Cause when you're a large winery like that, it's really all logistics going back and forth. Um, whereas the winemaking, the science behind winemaking is virtually the same. It's it, at a larger winery. It's really that those logistics. Yeah. I mean, quite a bit of your career, although this may change now, as we'll find out later, has been spent working for big wineries, very large wineries or big groups, really like Treasury Wine Estates, Constellation Brands. I just wonder, tell us what are the advantages and disadvantages of working for these big groups? I mean, it's the image that we as a lot of wine professionals, we can be a bit snotty about them and snooty, that big can't be beautiful. Is that unfair? Um, I think, you know, I think it depends on what level of the company you're at. The first company I, you know, when I was at Mission Bell, like that really was down and dirty, like churn, churn out wine at a very uh, affordable price point and, and move along with that. Whereas when you're in a company uh, winery like Mondavi, then obviously the focus is really much on fine wine and fine wine making as much as it would be at any other small winery. And so I think there's a real misconception that people have that like is, as soon as it becomes part of a big company, it can't be a, a fine wine anymore. And mm. and that's, that's not the case. There's things we have to think about as a corporate winery at the high end that small wineries usually don't have to think about. But um, we also have a lot of advantages because, you know, you have this great research and development group behind you and um, you know, lots, a team of winemakers. So you're not, you're never the solo person you know doing you know your thing on your own like you always have people you can call and especially at treasury like that was such a huge benefit for me as an up-and-coming winemaker i was able to work with so many established winemakers like margo van stavern and john priest over at Sud and christophe colbert at Stagsleep and you know and ed killian who was my boss at suverain and and having that wealth of knowledge to pull from and having those contacts to just call and say, Hey, I have a question. Why would you do this versus this? And so I really grew tremendously as a winemaker during my time at that uh, point. Um, so that, that was really helpful. And I suppose you could also afford to throw things away, can't you? I mean, in smaller wineries, it's harder to make that decision, you know, big selected selection decisions. You think, Oh God, you know, can I really afford not to make this? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that is true. Uh, you know, there's been very few times where something has been so bad that I'm like, okay, that, that needs to go away. Um, but that is a, a nice thing about being in a large company is, is if you plan ahead for it and you say, Hey, I'm going to make, um, you know, X number thousand gallons of rosé more than I need, who needs rosé, then you can have somebody will say, Oh yeah, I need rosé and you ship it over there. Hmm. Um, you know, the downside of that is if you're at the bottom of the food chain, you get all the stuff that nobody <laughs> else wants to deal with. And so that, that, that becomes a little bit challenging on its own, you know. So then okay, you have so, to, yeah, so make sure make sure you're at the top of the food chain is what you're saying. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because I mean, exactly. when you when you were you you know you had a very senior position at the Robert Mondavi Winery, you were right at the top of the food chain, and you had this very close association with the Tocolon Vineyard, which is many people regard as a kind of Californian Grand Cru. Just tell us a bit about the site. What makes it so special, and how do you get the best out of it? Because it makes whites and and top reds, doesn't it? It's a bit like a Burgundian yes. Grand Cru in that sense, or some Burgundian Grand Crus. Exactly. Yeah. The 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 Fumé Blanc, so the Sauvignon Blanc, the Simeon that come mm. off of Tocolon, and the Bordeaux reds are mm. all amazing. Like, there's not a bad spot amongst them. Um, and so I think what really makes Tocolon special is the mix of soils that you see there, because it is a really unique soil organization so it's it's got some calcareous soil which you know was original uh, forming of the the Mayakamas mountains it has volcanic material um, that had been part of the Napa volcanics or the Sonoma volcanics and then um, then all of that was kind of eroded down the mountains and then redeposited uh, by density by through water um, onto these alluvial fans. And so you have this really interesting mix of, um, uh, of soil parent material that comes together in a really beautiful way. And then you look at the location of the vineyard in the valley, you know, it's on the west side, but it's in the shadow of the mountains. So it you know, cools off very quickly in the afternoon. It's halfway up the valley, so you get warm enough, but it's not like as hot as St. Helena or Calistoga gets. You know, so it's, it's in a really beautiful spot mm. in the valley and then you have all this great complexity coming from the soils and how rocky or not they are and mm. and it's just an ideal spot for mm. grape growing that's why it's so famous right right yeah and when did your association with the finger lakes begin i mean obviously you studied uh, in new york state at cornell and when you when when did you guys buy your first piece of land there and what drew you there really yeah. So, I mean, originally it was when we went up to school. So I went, uh, started at Cornell in the fall of 2004 and graduated in 2006. And I worked in the Finger Lakes at Thirsty Owl Wine Company, which is up on Cayuga Lake. Um, both of those all, all through my time at Cornell. And so I really figured out at that point that the place had amazing potential and I, I really wanted to see like how far the envelope could be pushed. But both Brian and I, you know, we are not independently wealthy, so we couldn't, you know, buy a vineyard, start a vineyard, anything like that right out the gate. And we also wanted to learn more about the industry as a whole. And so um, when I got the job with Constellation um, out on Cal in California, we said, all right, let's go out to California. We'll be there like max three years and then we'll come back and start our vineyard at that point. So three years turned into nine years in California the first time. And then in 2015, Constellation moved me back to be director of winemaking at their Canandaigua winery, which they've since sold to Gallo. But um, I was back in the Finger Lakes. And at that point, I said, OK, you know, we know enough at this point. Let's let's start our own thing. And so we bought 12 acres of land on the northeast side of Seneca Lake. It doesn't have any vines on it yet, but that's that's where we are starting our project. And um 
then we bought fruit and we just started with, you know, 119 cases of Riesling that first year and have just been kind of growing steadily ever since with, with Trestle. Because you're now making, well, we'll talk about this a bit more in a minute, but Chardonnay and Riesling, aren't you? You're making two. Correct. Two and, and now this harvest, we started doing with Cabernet Franc. We have a dry rosé now that's coming out this summer. And then we'll have a, a still red Cabernet Franc yes. um, in two years. It's interesting. I noticed you described the Finger Lakes as both the next great wine region in the US and the most challenging place to grow grapes that you know. Just tell us a bit more about the climate and the terroir. It's pretty cold in winter there, isn't it? I mean, what about the rest of the year? I hope it warms up a bit, but. It does. It does. And the summer, the summer and fall make it all worth it. <laughs> um, so you know, everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's so cold. Why would you live there? Yes. Like February is brutal. Like absolutely. Like the middle of January <laughs> through the end of February is totally brutal. It snows constantly. It's frigid, you know, like down close to zero. Um, I mean, and, nearly in Canada, aren't you? You're very close to Canada. Yes, to Ontario, very close really. to Canada. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but it, it is a continental climate. Mm. And so, you know, it gets very cold in the winter, but it is beautiful in the summertime. Um, there's gorgeous blue skies, puffy clouds, you know, it rains pretty routinely, which is one of the reasons it's a very challenging place to grow. Mm. But we have water, which is nice because California does not have water. Mm. Um, and so there's things I have to worry about in California mm. that I don't have to worry about in the Finger Lakes. And you don't worry about wildfires, presumably, do you? In the same don't way? worry about wildfires in the yeah. Finger Lakes, no. And so yeah, that's that's all you know, very nice. So we, we have our own challenges with mildews and disease pressure and, and things like mm. that. But, um, you know, really, I, I think the biggest challenge as, as a region right now is just letting people know we make more than sweet wine because for you know decades, New yeah. York has been known for like sweet wine made from native grapes. Yeah. Um, and there are so many wineries making really beautiful wines from vinifera. Mm -hmm. And the real key about the Finger Lakes is there's 11 Finger Lakes, but really only three of them are deep enough and, and long enough to uh, support great growing and they don't freeze over in the wintertime. So Seneca Lake, which is the deepest of the, the three uh, main lakes, which is Cayuga, Seneca and Cuca, um, is has only frozen over four times in recorded history. So it, I mean, it keeps heat for the grapevines in the winter and it keeps things cooler in the summertime. So it's, it's this beautiful, like natural moderating body of water and uh, that's really unique and so you have to have the vinifera within a mile ish of the the lake in order for it to survive the cold interesting yeah because as you said historically new york state was was associated with what would they they were with non-vinifera vines specifically they right. were wild vines weren't they in, in many cases or crossings or hybrids or all sorts of things when did when did finger lakes really begin as a wine region as a serious wine region if we can call it that? well i mean it would depend if you're talking pre-prohibition or post-prohibition because pre-prohibition um, the Finger Lakes was the champagne of the U.S. Like there was a lot of sparkling wine coming out of the Finger Lakes uh, based mostly on native varieties. In modern day Finger Lakes, and I would I would translate your, your discussion around, it wouldn't become a serious wine region. Um, I yeah. would say definitely in the 1960s and 70s is really when the foundation mm. was put together. Yeah. Although I think it's only been in the last 10 years that it has started to gain some international notoriety for okay. the quality of the wine. So I mean, we're particularly for Riesling, yeah, yeah, Riesling, Cap Franc, Chardonnay, really, right. yeah, right, yeah. And and you, as you said, you buy you buy from growers at the moment because you haven't yet planted your own vineyard. How, how different are the three lakes in terms of the 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 characteristics of the fruit that you get from the three 
or three lakes on the different vineyard, the different vineyards? Yeah, they're quite different. So um, I think if you, I always kind of think about them in quadrants. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you take each lake and you divide it in half, short ways and you divide it in half long ways. So there's a northeast side, a northwest side, a southeast side, and a southwest side. So the northern half tends to be more like faults, you know, so kind of gentle rolling hills and and no, no real dramatic scenes, whereas the southern half, that's more Mosul-like, where there are very dramatic slopes and, you know, you're seeing a lot more waterfalls and gorges down there. And, and so the, that's a much more um, extreme uh, side to grow, grow grapes. So you see a lot more fresh, crisp, linear-like acid on the southern sides. The northern sides, we get a little bit more soft acid, which is why I'm able to make a fully dry Riesling without it being, you know, really grippy. Mm-hmm. Um, then if you look at the east versus the west sides, the east sides of the lake get that afternoon sun, so the western sun. So there's sections of the east side that are known as the banana belt, particularly along Seneca Lake. And and they, they do get warmer than you see on the other side, the, um, the, but it also gets kind of the prevailing winds during the winter time on the, on the east side. The west side is more protected from the winds, so they tend to butt out a little bit earlier, but um, they are getting straight on that morning sun side. So they don't quite see as tropical of a note on the fruit. It's yeah. more like green apple and things on the, on the, on the west side plantings. So that's kind of how I, I think about the lakes in general. Now, of mm-hmm. course, Cuga and Seneca and Cuca have their own little minute personalities, but um, I think where the quadrant you're planted in the lake has far more to do with the flavors and profiles and acid that you're getting than which lake you're on. Interesting, yeah. But why did you call the winery Trestle 31? It's something to do with the railway line, yes, isn't it? Yes, so our property, <laughs> at the top of the property, there is the uh, Finger Lakes Railway that comes across, and there is a railroad trestle right at the top of our property. And so it was one of those things that we were kind of looking at it and going, okay, well, it, we either embrace this and make it part of us, or it's going to be something we're kind of like trying to ignore for the rest of our life. And so we decided to just fully embrace it and say, yes, we're embracing the fact that there's a railroad trestle right there. Um, and so all of our labels, the Riesling label, not all, but the Riesling label and the Demisec Riesling label, both are taken from uh, drawings from photographs that I took of the railroad trestle. Um, and then the Chardonnay label is a drawing from the west side of Seneca Lake, which is where the Chardonnay is from, um, of a Finger Lakes Railway uh, line on the other side. So, you know, they're they're all very linked to the railways. <laughs> and why 31? 31. Was it the 31st trestle? Yeah, 31 was the Revolutionary War lot that our property was part of. So after the Revolutionary War, the government gave out 500 acre tracts of land to the soldiers because they couldn't pay them. And so when we got the deed to our property, we looked back and ours was part of lot 31. And so that's why oh. we decided to go with Trestle 31. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked a lot about, about your husband, Brian, obviously been together a long time and he's part of the reason you're in wine. Yes. I mean, I love that line where he said at the beginning, you know, when you think you're setting this up, it can't be that hard, can it? Right. I mean, I just wonder, you know, what do you know now that you didn't know then you'd pass on to somebody, well, like Brian, the, the Brian in somebody else's life saying, can't be that hard. I mean, it can, can't it? I mean, what would what do you wish you'd known then? 
that you know now? Um, I, I wish I would have known that a, it is really hard. And both of us are in very much in agreement that this is a super challenging endeavor that we've mm. gone on about. And there's, there's been many times where he and I look at each other we're like, man, if we hadn't started a winery, like we could be bore bore right now. And like, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a challenging, very capital intensive endeavor. And, um, it never grows as quickly as you think it's going to grow. And I don't care what anybody says. Selling wine is the hardest part of any part of the process. Growing, making, branding, like all of it is easier than actually selling it. And I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult it really is because there's so many brands out there and so many exciting things. And so getting your brand in front of people and, you know, taken seriously, especially when you're coming from a lesser known region is really, really challenging. Um, I yeah. personally really enjoy that challenge because it's kind of like every time I go on a distributor sales trip or something, I, I'm like, all right, let's see what we can do here. <laughs> let's you know? go, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, so um, yeah, that's it. It's, it's really fun for me, but I think there, a lot of people underestimate the work involved with sales. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I mean, you, 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 your focus, as you said already, is on Chardonnay and Riesling. You're making a rosé this year, at least in the Finger Lakes. I, just tell us a bit about Chardonnay and Riesling and your approach to them, because they're such different grapes, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Do you love them equally? Do, do you treat, can you treat them in the same way, or do you need to? Can you be a bit more indulgent with Chardonnay? And does Riesling demand more of you? I don't know. I mean, tell us as a winemaker how you deal with them. I think you know Riesling to me is like the white analog of Pinot Noir. It is very terroir driven, and there there are a few things you can do as a winemaker to tweak the profile, but you really cannot radically change what you're given with the fruit. Whereas I think Chardonnay, you've got this underlying terroir, but as a winemaker, you can really swing that pendulum a lot of different directions. And so I think uh, I, I tend to be much more hands-on with the Chardonnay winemaking. Like, you know, we've got oak, we do a lot of leaves stirring, you know, we use a couple different yeasts and um, whereas the Riesling, it's kind of just bring it in, press it, leave it on grossleys a little bit for some stabulation, put it in a tank, throw some yeast in it and leave it alone for three months. You know, like, that, that's kind of, it's, they're very different varieties to me. And, and you either have the fruit or you don't. You either have the fruit or you don't. Exactly. Yeah. And Chardonnay, you can compensate a bit, can you? I mean, if the fruit's not quite as good. Yeah, I think I'm not, not talking about your wine. Of, I mean, in general, with course, Chardonnay. Of course, yeah. Your I, fruit's I, obviously wonderful. No, I absolutely <laughs> have made some uh, some some good Chardonnay after out of some pretty crappy fruit in my career. So, um, <laughs> yes, I, I to truly believe that Chardonnay, you can, you can puff up a bit. Uh, yeah. Not much, but a bit. Uh, whereas things like Pinot Noir and Riesling, uh, they are very telling. If you're there's no hiding, there's no hiding things yeah. in those wines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you make two very good styles of Riesling. I mean, I, I really fell in love with them first time I tasted them. Dry one and an off dry, mm -hmm. kind of off dry medium, isn't it? Demi sec, really. Um, just tell us a bit more about Riesling. I mean, I always think that Riesling is very popular with people like us who are wine pros and we love Riesling, but you actually put it in front of punters sometimes and they're going to go, oh, I don't really like that. It's a bit dry or it's a bit acidic or it's too sweet or they have a strange impression of it. I mean, how, how do you persuade people to drink it? Do they, how do we get it the, the recognition it deserves as a grape? Yeah, that's that's the hard part. I think the I think the biggest issue with Riesling is that so many people who like dry wine only think it's made sweet. You know, so there, there's yeah. this whole category of dry Riesling that 
nobody expects it. The Riesling drinkers <laughs> expect it to be sweet, so they're disappointed that it's dry. And the dry wine drinkers expect it to be sweet, so they never pick it up. So, <laughs> so I think there that's the problem with dry Riesling is that we haven't done enough. Like we all know it's amazing. Like speaking mm. of the folks that really are geeky about wine, mm. but getting it into a wider audience. I think is really hard. So I always kind of say, look, if you, if you like a dry style, but maybe Sauvignon Blanc is too like green and grassy for you, you will love a dry Riesling, you know? So that's, that's kind of how, how I look at it. Um, and I try to explain it to people like that, but you know, as you know, people love a sweeter style of Riesling too. And so that's why we introduced the Demisec and that's a more classic style for the Finger Lakes. I think our dry style is, is pretty austere and was a bit revolutionary when, when we started with it um and i love it and i know other people love it but it's not a crowd-pleasing wine like it's very much a, sorry there's a truck i'm not down. sure what's happening outside i think it's it's, it's, it's the truck gone past yes truck <laughs> it's all part of the fun. brakes going past there um <laughs> but yeah i mean i knew it was not going to be a wine that like everybody's going to drink and go, oh my god this is great you know i know there were yeah. going to be people that loved it and there were going to be people that really hated it and mm. I was okay with that because I wanted to make wines that I wanted to drink. And so that's why we started with the dry Riesling. And then we have the semi-dry, again, not super sweet. It's only 16 grams per liter, but it's sweet enough that the people who are expecting a little bit sweeter of a Riesling um, are feeling more comfortable with it. Yeah. So you, you, so you, get, you get the best of both worlds mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. I mean, yours is very much a family business. You know, you, your husband, Brian, obviously is involved and your mum was involved. I think she designed the label. She's a painter, isn't she? She did the label. And your sister-in-law was involved with the label as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've all been involved in one way or another. I mean, it's a great idea because you probably have to pay them less or you pay them in wine. I mean, is it important to you that it stays that way, that you want to keep it a family business or are you going to expand the whole thing and, and will it become a corporation at some point in the future? Well, you know, I, I try to keep things close to the vest and close to the family as, as we can. I'm we do have non-family members involved, but they tend to be very close family friends, you know, so it's still kind of in the family, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I am fully aware that if this continues to grow, that mm -hmm. it's not going to be able to stay small family, you know, everybody in, in, in the family is involved. But um, I think as of right now, we're, we're able to do that. And as long as it stays in family control, meaning like my husband and I are, are managing it and, you know, eventually maybe my kids are managing it, um, then, you know, I think that that accomplishes the goal without necessarily having to have everybody be related. That's <laughs> working. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it might be a bit weird. It would be like the Mormons or something. Right. Now. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, you're just about to release the first Napa Cabernet, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of it because um, it's too complicated for me, but you're going to do it, yes. I know. You're releasing that under your own brand. Um, just just tell us the name and just tell us what we're going to need to expect in terms of the style. Where's it from? It's Stag's Leap, isn't it? Yes. So the name is Fea Rua. So it, it, hmm. it rolls off the tongue much easier than it looks like. So it's, It does, doesn't it? That's actually quite easy. Yeah, Fea Rua. Fea Rua. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, it's Scotch Gaelic for a wild, untamed red deer. And my husband came up with the name because he was like, you know, we always focus on the Italian side because they were the ones that started grapes. But, you know, he has, you know, a heavy Scotch background. My family has quite a bit of Scotch heritage. And so we thought it would be a really wonderful way to kind of pay homage to that. And I loved the the idea of this untamed wildness being part of that because, you know, it, it it's good timing with my transition from being a full-time corporate winemaker to being um, my own boss, 
you know, for the most part. And, and so I, I love that idea of being free and loose and let, let go, letting go of, you know, constraints of, of things. So that's super exciting. And the first vintage is coming soon. Is that when what's the vintage? Yes. Yeah, so the vintage is 2018. It's 100% Fantastic. Cabernet from Stag's Leap. Um, so right now we don't have a website up, but for those who are following us on our Trestle website and our Trestle mailing list, they will have first dibs at the Feyerua release. So, you know, make will sure. Will be under the Trestle brand umbrella, as it were? It doesn't have Trestle anywhere on it, but we definitely okay. want to make sure that the people who have been supporting us for yeah. the last seven years are the ones that get first dibs at this, because it is small. Yeah. It's only 60 cases. Um, so it's quite small, but it's, it's really amazing fruit. And I had so much fun making it because it was one of the first red wines in California, I was able to make just purely on my own and, and making all the decisions and saying, yes, this is what I want to do. Um, and so that, that was, that was really exciting. I mean, you became a master of wine in 2017 and you were the first female winemaker in the US to do it. There are other people who passed, I think, who were, who were journalists and, and, and retailers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that you said that one of your reasons for doing what to do it was so one would, no one would ever tell me no again that I didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, has that been the case? Do you still get mansplained too as, as, as a female professional? Is it, does it piss you off? It, it does. I mean, at some point you just get used to it. Um, but it definitely happened a lot early in my career. And I got the, oh, well, before you were born or, oh, well, you just haven't been in the industry long enough or, oh, you just don't know what you're talking. You know, and it was just, I don't know, it was very patronizing. And so I thought, well, what, how do I, how do I prove to people? Because, and this was even after I graduated from Cornell and I was like, well, how do I prove to people that, you know, an Ivy League degree means I, I do know something about what's happening, yeah. you know? And yeah. um, so then I, I kind of looked around to see, okay, what else could I do to add to my credentials and I found the master of wine and um I I just I remember the moment I found it on the internet and I was like oh that sounds amazing and I was talking to my my office mate at the time and I said oh I want to do this this sounds awesome and he goes nobody actually does that you thought I will (laughs) and and, and I said I think I will and and so yeah it was one of those things where like yeah I'll I'm gonna make that happen I like your idea as well that wine is a performance art. I mean, you're a very good public speaker. You're a very good communicator. Just explain what you mean by by performance art. I mean, do you actually out there kind of dancing around as you're well, as you're making the wine? I think it goes back to like my original career aspiration was to be a ballet dancer, and so I was in a professional company for a while. And you know, and there's and my mom obviously being an artist is a is a um, visual artist, you know, and she, she will tell you that. So I, and then I went into music and so I played flute and I was planning on majoring in flute in college before I went into horticulture. So I f- have a very good background in understanding the difference between a performing art and a visual art. And the way I think about it is a visual art, you can experience that same piece for years and years and years, like, you know, you go to see the Mona Lisa today and you go to see it 20 years from now, you will see the exact same picture. It's not going to change in any way over that time, assuming that all care and lights and everything is, is fine with it. <laughs> Whereas a performance art changes, it's, it could be the same choreography, but it might not be the same night. It might not be the same audience. It's going to be slightly different. You might not be exactly the same place on the stage. Um, same thing with like jazz and music, you know, it'll be the same song, but each performer has its own little flair. They might put a grace note here or there, you know, it, it's never going to be exactly the same, 
you have to, it has a moment that you are witnessing and then that moment is gone. And, and so that's why for wine, that, that is the way wine is. So it's, it's a vintage. You may be doing the same thing every vintage, but you have to adapt to what the vintage gives you. So there's adaptation there. And then when the wine is poured, it's poured at that moment in its lifespan, that that is the only moment that you experience that. And if you taste it a year later, two years later, it may be the same wine, but it's not the same wine. It's a different wine. And you're not the same person. And either, you're not right? the same person and yeah. you're not with the same group of people and you're not in the same yeah. place. And and so that that's where I differentiate the two. And a lot of people say, oh, wine can't be an art because there's too much science involved. And I, I absolutely beg to differ with that because if you look at the science of glass blowing, and I always bring up glass blowing because that is a very dangerous art, visual art form. Um, you, you have to mix chemicals in the right way, otherwise they explode or you could be poisoned. And like you get to get some of the blue colors, you're having to use like arsenic and things. And, you know, so that, that has a lot of chemistry involved in the science of glass blowing, but nobody ever questions whether it's an art form or not. And I don't understand why we're still questioning whether winemaking is an art form or not. And my mom would definitely say, well, it's more of a craft, but I think yeah. at a certain level, it is art. Like if you know what we're doing at Mandavi, what I'm doing with Trestle and with, with Fayarua, that, that is art at that level. There's absolutely a craft level of wine, which I would say is the, you know, everyday drinking wine, the wines you, you see on, on the shelves that you're just like, Hey, I just want to grab a bottle for dinner. Absolutely. There is craft involved with that. But when you get to art form, that's when you're really drinking something special. I, I like that very much. I've seen you described as a bi-coastal winemaker. We know that you're on your way literally from California back to New York, aren't you? Uh, and you're in Ohio, as we've said. How do you divide your time between California and New York? How are you going to divide your time in future? Do you feel equal at home in both places? Yes, I feel equally at home in both places. Um, it, it really is coming down to like where my family is going to be based. So my family is now going to be based in New York versus California. Um, and that's for a lot of different reasons, mostly because during the pandemic, we realized how far away we really were from my parents, Brian's parents, sisters, you know, everything like that. And so it, it really is one of those things where um, it'll be easier from family life to be on the East Coast yeah. versus the West Coast. But what I've been doing for the last three years is going back and forth ex with the exception of during the pandemic when kind of everything shut down for a bit, but I've been but not in a car, I hope. No, not in a car, <laughs> and, you know, airplanes, airplanes. <laughs> so I've been going back and forth and, um, and, and spending time, you know, in the Finger Lakes doing what we need to do there and then mm. going back to California. And now it's going to be the exact same thing, only going a different direction on the plane. So yeah. it's, you know, I've, I've spent about a, a one trip a month into the other direction. And so that's, that's what my plan is here too. In, in, in a different direction, mm -hmm. as it were. One of the more intriguing things on your CV I saw was that you were a ninja winemaker challenge contestant. I mean, it sounds a bit like a Chinese game show yeah, or something. So it I was, just, it was a bit what like did the whole thing involve? Did you win? Uh, I got a silver medal. So there, that's yeah. that, you know, so um, yeah, so I got a silver medal that started in 2015. Um, and so everybody got a section of vineyard in this government run vineyard and we all got like 20 tons so it was not insignificant amount of fruit we're getting um and so then we get um we each got paired up with a winery in Ningxia and it was really a crapshoot as to what you had capability wise going for you um and so you know I got very lucky and I was paired with Chateau Lansai which is now one of the classed uh wineries in Ningxia um, and the winery, there, the family that runs the winery there is like my my Chinese family. I love them to death because they're so sweet. 
Um, and they were great. And I just was able to make some really fun wine. And so over two years, I was going back and forth to China. And so I got quite comfortable with this making wine in a far off place thing through that process. Um, and so I spent probably three weeks on the ground, if you added it all up over the course of two, two years. Yeah. And um, I know other winemakers that were there months and, you know, and, you know, I, they, my wine was just as good, if not better than a lot of them, you know, so um, I, I don't necessarily think it has to be the amount of time you spend as long as you're making the right decisions at the right time. Yeah. And getting the getting the good fruit again, I right. suppose. Yeah. Exactly. I, you do so many things and as we've heard you've got this kind of bi-coastal winemaking role and obviously busy with your family as well and uh, running your own business now increasingly focused on that but you're also an active blogger uh, on uh and a published journalist I, I wonder is, is writing something you enjoy is it something you'd like to do more of? I do like it I do enjoy writing I don't know if I would call myself an active blogger anymore I haven't really been blogging very much since 2018 um but you know, I, it, there's a lot of blogging up there for anybody who wants to go look at it. Um, but it, I think in 2018, I really made a shift from being a blogger to being a, a legitimate writer. And so I've been writing articles for different magazines like Wine Business Monthly. Um, I've done some teaching for like Wine Scholars Guild and um, Napa Valley Wine Academy, some WSET writing. Um, Stephen Skelton, uh, had me, uh, do, uh, a chapter of his viticulture book. Um, and then I helped edit the first edition so that it all like, came together very cohesively. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, so just things like that. I don't have any plans of ever being a full-time writer. Don't. It's, it's even less profitable than making it. <laughs> um, but I am working on a book right now about overcoming failure. And I think one of the things that a lot of people ask me about my time as I'm at, going through the Master Wine program is I sat the exam six times before I passed it. And so that was five times that I failed it. And people were keep asking, like, well, how did you how did you come back from that? How did you find the strength to keep going? And I really am convinced that the, becoming a master of wine is, is less about the, the knowledge you have and more about your perseverance level at some level, you know, and so endurance. In your endurance, like how, how much grit do you have and how much are you willing to take, you know? And, um, and so that's why I started writing the book is because that became the most asked question I had from people is like, how did you, find the strength to keep going. And, and okay, so that's, like that. that's what I'm writing about. So I'm about halfway done with that and uh, looking for a publisher at this point. I, I like the sound of that very much. Final question is I just wonder, how, how do you get away from wine? You know, it's presumably it's spending time with your family. But are you still playing the flute? Yeah. Uh, have you inherited any of your mother's, you know, artistic genes as a painter or anything like that? No, I mean, my whole life really, a lot of it is wine, but um, I love spending time with my family. Um, my oldest son is a, is a golfer and so I'm learning golf to go out and, and play with him. And it's very humbling to get beaten by a nine-year-old pretty much every time <laughs> we go golfing. Um, and so it keep, help, keeps me perspective there. Um, let's see what else. Uh, you know, we love to travel. My husband and I love to travel. And so, we're, you know, we, we do vacations and things. We always try to get to the beach in Virginia once a year just to get together with family. You know, so it's, it's mostly travel, I think, when I'm trying to get away. <laughs> And during my MW studies, I was always traveling to like wine regions. And so now I try to get to a beach at least once a year or a week <laughs> and just get away from wine and wine involved things and, you know, have have some some other other drinks, you know. 
Fantastic. Okay, you've got more travel to do. You've got to get back on the road, haven't you? Yes. Get back back on the road, and I'll be speaking to you very soon. Lovely to see you, uh, and enjoy talking to you as ever. Hope to catch up with you soon, whether in the Finger Lakes or in the UK or somewhere at an MW conference around the world. It's always been a pleasure to talk to you. See you soon. Oh, thanks. See you soon. Bye. Nova's such a great person. I hope you're okay with some of the sounds of life on the road. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Turkish master sommelier, Isabel. Join us then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.